Hi, I'm Olaomi Brigway, and I began to experience all-round supernatural success in my life when I finally accepted that no matter how hard a person works, they will never rise above their level of thinking. Are you looking for transformation from the inside out? Then join me on the Super Abundant Life podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Super Abundant Life podcast, where we tackle real issues by examining the lives of real people and extracting real life solutions that are rooted in the wisdom of God. This is your host, Olaomi Brigway. Hi, this is Olaomi and welcome back. Welcome to episode 49 of the Super Abundant Life podcast. Pretty much every week now, I receive messages from people that tell me they're listening to the podcast, they're sharing it with their friends and family, and I'm always so privileged to receive those messages because I don't in any way take it for granted that anyone will sit down and listen to me talk for an hour it really is a privilege and i really you know um so that is why my commitment to the podcast and to you is to always make sure that i'm improving to always make sure that we deliver um, topics that are valuable that are relevant and will in one way or the other be of service and of help to you so thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and welcome to episode 49 Recently, just a few days ago, I sat down and I was sort of reflecting. I don't even know, you know, what brought it on. I think my husband and I were having a conversation. And then I, you know, I started thinking back to my professional career. And I realized, ah, wait, I only worked in four organizations. I think it's the fact that my husband was saying, you know, we were talking and he's worked, you know, because obviously um, as a doctor, different hospitals posted, you know, particularly early on in his career when he was in training. Uh, so he's he's lived or visited <laughs> so many parts of England that I've I've never been to. So I think that what brought it on. And then I thought about my own professional career. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I've worked in four, a, a total of four organizations, um, I think over a 15-year period. So I was in four places. I worked in four places over a period of 15 years. Um, and I, as I sat down, so I used that as an opportunity to actually reflect on my professional career. And one of the things, one of the things that I was grateful to God for, one of the things that I noted was that in every single one of those organizations, when it was time for me to leave, there was always, as in some kind of, um, they always would come up with incentives. In other words, they, they, there was not a single organization where I was about to leave and they were like, okay, bye. <laughs> but they went over and beyond and would look for different ways, different things, offer all sorts um, to convince me to stay, right? Every single one, and God is my witness, every single one that I worked in. Um, now, obviously, for someone, if I'm, you know, for someone that is not, uh, I was going to say the word deep, <laughs> but um, self-aware, I think that's the right word. 
if you're not self-aware, then you could, you know, see that and say, oh, I'm just the bomb. I'm, you know, <laughs> people just want me. People love me. No, but I knew that that was not the case. You know, it wasn't just, it wasn't like people just could not do without me. I knew it was nothing like that. Then I, so because I knew that, I began to think about why was that the case? What were the things that I was doing that made me indispensable to these organizations to the point that it was always difficult for them to let me go. So I sat down and I thought about it, the growth or whatever it is, um, the principles that I learned that I then went and applied the things that God taught me, made, you know, the corrections he told me to make. And so over the period of 50, over my 15 year professional career, I came up with a few points. And then by studying and researching for this episode as well, I came across some that I didn't even know that I've now added to the list, which brings me to what we're talking about today. And he's very simply eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work. Eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work. And what I mean simply by that is you, you add so much value to that organization that when it's time for you to leave, um, they are fully supportive, obviously, of you and your career progression. It could go one of two ways. They could say, okay, you want to progress in your career. Listen, we'll offer you this promotion or this leadership responsibility and so on, or we'll increase your pay. Um, these are things that were offered to me, but it will get to the point as well where you're like, my time is just done here and I need to go. And if that's the case, they will send you off with, you know, goodwill. Um, they will, you know, they will, they will tell you that you've done a good job, etc. So I want every single one, every, every single person listening to me, uh, to get to the point where they are indispensable to their current organization so that even when it's time for them to leave, you are sent off with such pomp and pageantry <laughs> because you have literally invested so much in that organization. All right. Okay. So, um, as I always do, my signature is that my teachings are from the word of God. So I believe without a shadow of doubt that whatever leadership principle, whatever, um, law of success that you may find out there that you may read in books, books that will even tell you that God doesn't exist. Everything came from the Bible. You, you can find it literally in the Bible. So my own signature is I ask God and I say, show me, show me this in the Bible and he will always show me. All right. So this, these things that I'm going to be teaching today. So the eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work. Um, I'm going to be teaching from the story of the man called Naaman. He's a very popular guy in the scripture. He was a army commander that was very successful, but then had leprosy. So this is second Kings chapter five. So I'm going to pretty much go through the whole chapter and then extract those eight principles or the eight ways that you can make yourself indispensable. And I'm sort of going to be switching from one character to the other. So there were points where Naaman was indispensable to his boss, the king. There were points where there was a slave girl that was indispensable to him, etc. So I'm going to use different characters and things that happen within that chapter 
to extract very clearly eight ways that you can make yourself indispensable to your employer in this year 2020 and beyond okay all right let's get started so second kings 5 the text i'm reading um is new living translation so number one the first one, and I put this one first to le- honestly to get it out of the way because it's the only one that people think they need to do in order to become indispensable. They think that once this one is ticked, uh-uh, they're going to offer me promotions, they're going to tell me uh, I'm going to increase your salary and all those things. And it is simply this. The first way to make yourself indispensable is to be exceptional at what you do to be exceptional at what you do but there's so much more people think that once i'm good at my job or exceptional at my job then that's the only thing i need for me to be indispensable no it's not there are so many people that are good but they're not even recognized for what they're doing um, because they're not following some of the other laws that i'm going to be talking about today so where did i see that in the bible so second kings 5 1 says the king of aram had great admiration for naaman the commander of his army why because through him the lord had given aram great victories it says the reason why so in this context naaman had a boss <laughs> called the king of aram and bible says that the king naaman's boss had great admiration so it wasn't just oh you know pat on the back you're good at your job had great admiration meaning he would look at this guy and be like ah, how can somebody be this good that was that's what it means you he, he just admired him greatly um, and he, you know, he probably wished that ah, I wish I could be like Neymar, you know, that kind of thing. And it was extremely valuable to him as well, because someone that is giving you a lot of victories against, um, enemy kingdoms, you want to keep that person close to you. You want to keep them near you. You want to make sure that they're always working for you and not for the competition. Right. But the other thing I wanted to point out is this notice that it says God gave Neymar those great victories. Yes, be exceptional at what you do and, you know, increase your skills, gain knowledge, put yourself in a position where you continually learn and gain experience, etc. But I want to specifically mention here today, don't neglect your God factor. So many Christians separate the church and the state. What that means is, so you go to church and you pray in tongues and you, there's word of knowledge and gift of healing and all those things. But then once people walk out of the four walls of the building, they think that the influence of God in their lives has ended, right? So they don't feel like God can actually come and influence what they're doing in their workplace. And one of the things that I learned very early, and I think um, it's one of the greatest lessons I've learned in my life, is that, listen, I, you know, God wants to help you. He wants to, you know, he wants to produce exceptional results through you that will make people's jaws drop. Like, ah, how are you getting these kind of results? Right. So engage your God factor, bring God into your situations. Don't. So when people sort of think about bringing God into their workspace, they tend to only limit it to, oh, I want to pray for a better job. So I'm praying to God, Lord God, I need a better job. God, I need a promotion. Uh, God, I need more money. Give me a job that's paying more. So prayers along the give me, give me, give me. But what you should actually realize is the way you actually bring God into the work of your hands 
is by taking whatever you're working on to him in prayer. So you literally take your five loaves and two fish and take it to him and he will multiply it to the point that people will stand up and will take notice. All right. Yes. Pray about promotion, pray about getting a new job that pays you more, etc. But I'm telling you that the quickest way <laughs> and the most spectacular way you can get that without ever praying for a higher paying salary, right? A high, a, a job that pays a higher salary is to do what I'm telling you today. So whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is, right? Take it to God in prayer. Even if you're not the team lead, even if you are the smallest person on the team that you're just there to take notes in a meeting, it doesn't matter. Commit it, whatever you're, you know, pray about the team. Buy. One of the things that I learned from my husband is you buy into the vision of whatever organization or his church or whatever. If you're in a space and you're part of it, you should buy into the vision. You should Take it to God at the beginning of the year or when you start a new job and say, okay, God, this is the vision of the CEO of this of this company. What is my own role? How can I interpret the vision in a way that will bring multiplication to the company? That was what Joseph did. So Joseph interpreted the vision of, of Pharaoh and as a result of that, abundance came to Egypt. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay, so it's not just about praying for more, more, um, more money, praying for a better job. We can do that, but the the quickest way, the guaranteed way that you get all those things without spending all your prayer time praying for them, is to do this. Interpret the vision of the house in in a way that will bring abundance into you. And the only way you can do that is to take it up in prayer. To God. So take projects that you're working on, your area of responsibility, and even the whole company. Lift it up to God in prayer. Ask God to multiply. Ask God to give divine ideas that will bring increase into that organization. Let God bring out great victories through you into that place. All right? The same way uh, it happened for Naaman. So the first one is to be exceptional at what you do, but not just, you know, up, you know, to be exceptional absent of God, whereby you're just using your brain. You're just, you know, you're <laughs> spending 14 hours working so that you can be exceptional. It doesn't need to be hard. It doesn't need to be hard. When you tap into the miraculous, things become easy. And I'm speaking from experience. I've shared this before on the podcast that I was, I probably, you know, was what. I was known <laughs> for spending the least amount of time at work because when I literally, when I started my career, I had a baby. My daughter was three months old when I went into my professional career. So I, I couldn't hang about because the nanny would close and I needed to go and pick her. So I couldn't be there till seven or eight as the other young teachers were doing. I simply did not have the luxury, but my results was always much more than everybody's because when I get home in my prayer time, I said, okay, God, how will these children, you know, excel and get the best results, the best they can possibly get? And I'll pray and I'll receive teaching strategies, etc., etc. All right. So that is what I mean. Involve God so that he can produce exceptional, exceptional results through you that will astound your world. Number two is this. And I'm going to read this first. Um, the verse before I tell you what number two is. Uh, verse 2 of 2 Kings 5 says, At this time, 
Um, I, I, I forgot to mention something. So if it tells us in verse one, that Naaman was a mighty warrior, but he also suffered from leprosy. So he was a leper. Okay. Uh, I could do a whole podcast on that, <laughs> but that's not what we're focusing on today. So verse two says at this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. It should really read as a slave because she was not a maid that was being paid. She was a slave. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. And the second principle that you can apply to make yourself indispensable in your workplace is this. Genuinely care about the progress or the well-being of your employer or your organization. Don't be one of those people that only goes there to collect salary and then once you walk out, that's it. You don't even think about the place again until you're back, right? Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people where money is your only motivation for being in a place. It's a, it's, um, it's a dangerous place to be because number one, you'll be miserable. You will be miserable because you're spending how many hours we spend at work. All right. Like, um, on average eight hours, some people spend more, some spend less eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, going to a place where the only motivation you have for going there is money. That's a pretty miserable life. So don't allow yourself to get to the point where that is your only motivation. Now you say to me, but it's not, it's not my ideal job. It's not what I really want to do. You know, I just, I, this is, this is like a stepping stone to where I would really get the one that I'm passionate about, etc. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so I was prepared for you. <laughs> this girl, remember, was a slave. She was, a, when she said my master, she literally meant my master. Naaman was her master. Naaman owned her. She was a slave. There's, you know, there's no situation that can be less ideal than that. She was a slave. She was even there against her will. She was probably never going to see her family again. At least you, you come, they even pay you. You get salary. You get, you get to go home and see your family at the end of the day. So no matter how, um, I don't know, far from ideal the job is, it doesn't matter. It is not an excuse to only be going there to collect money, right? That thing, that sort of attitude does something to the soul of a person. And if you if you honestly have convinced yourself that when I get the job that I'm really passionate about, I'm going to do it well and I'm going to plug in, it's not true. Because even if you get that job, what you have been doing has now become a habit, it is now a habit. Your brain has now been configured to the point that it says when we are in a working environment, we just do the work half-heartedly. You have trained your brain into that space so that even when you find a job that you absolutely love, give it two weeks and your brain just enters into that habit again and you find yourself just dissatisfied and just wanting, looking at the clock and wanting to rush out of there when it's five o'clock. So if you are there now, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the grace to be able to make adjustments in your attitude towards there. This little girl was a slave. She was a slave. 
right? Rather than be filled with bitterness or to zone out, right? She cared deeply about the people in her in her quote-unquote organization, her employer, the person that owned her. And the Bible doesn't say anything about Naaman, but if you put it in context, those guys in those days, they were merciless. Oh. They weren't like, you know, hush puppy, very nice, an employer that will come and give you cake, cookie and cream and whatever. So thank you for doing a wonderful job. They were harsh, right? You know, they, they there was very little value for human life. The way they would just behead somebody and, you know, remove somebody's tongue very little value for human life so i can imagine him being a hard man a hard man all right and guess you know the kind of job that he did he was a commander of the army he was a hard man the bible doesn't say that but in context if we let our imaginations run but this girl didn't allow that she had compassion regardless of what her circumstance was she had compassion for her employer, for the organization. So you go to work and, you know, you have so many reasons to complain. Nobody's saying that you don't have reasons to complain. You have every reason to complain. Uh, nothing is working. They're not listening. Everybody's just doing their own thing. And there's, you know, it's anarchy, right? But, but you are the light of God in that place. Light shines where there's darkness right? Light shines where there's darkness. If you have a torchlight and it is noon, right? The sun is high in the sky and you come out and you, f- you flash your torchlight. Nobody's going to see. You will not notice it. But coming to a house as dark, everyone that needs light will be gravitated to you. So instead of looking at the darkness and complaining about the organization, why not begin to see yourself as light? And now, you know, throughout all of this, I'll use my own example. The second to the last group that I worked in, oh my, maybe I was looking for a challenge. I left a, I left my second school um, and I was just like, listen, this I can do this job in my sleep. You know where all the kids now, they now know you, everybody respects you, or nobody, none of your children could, you know, <laughs> you only need to look at them once, right? A whole... Um, assembly hall of children you're walking and they're silent johnstown i'm like ah, this this is i need a challenge so <laughs> they said stay i said i'm not staying i need a challenge i went to the place where hmm there was a challenge the first few weeks i was like who sent me oh who sent me here ah as in i was so frustrated the entire setup and i'm not just talking, I, I didn't, you know, dealing with rude children and disobedient, that one, you know, because I had years of experience, it wasn't really the issue. But this was the first time that I was working in an organization where micromanagement was at its, at its peak. As in, they wanted, they, there was no freedom. You were literally tied up. And I'm like, I'm a leader here. So I literally have to, you know, bureaucracy, you meetings and meetings. I spent all my time in meetings and meetings. I'm like, what, what? I'm a teacher. Why am I in meetings and meetings? I didn't take this job. So I was, I was miserable, but I would tell you that, listen, even in that place, again, within, in fact, within two or three months, I took my house. So I, um, um, I don't want to go into all that, but basically the area that I was responsible to responsible for, I took them 
to the to the highest so they had points in terms of performance and all those and they were like at the bottom when i took the job out they were at the bottom within the first half term which was i think eight weeks they were at the top and this was the place where to get up in the morning and go down oh god who sent me to this place yet i was like listen no matter how dark it is i am light so that is what i'm saying don't use your mouth to start complaining and joining them because you are now part of the darkness. You will never stand out. All right. You will never stand out. So the servant girl or the slave girl was in a dark place, but she still allowed compassion to rule her. And she said, I wish my master would go and see the prophet. If she was a wicked person, if she was someone that was allowing herself to only see the darkness, she would never have told you know, what she, uh, name man. She was never shown the way she said, you this wicked man. I hope you die with that leprosy and your children to catch the leprosy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. But she allowed the compassion of God, the light of God to shine through her. So she became, imagine after we all know the story. So I can tell you that Naaman ended up healed. Do you think, what do you think he would do to that girl? All right. Just imagine it because that was the one thing with all the money he had, with all the influence and the position and all that and the wealth, he couldn't cure himself. So she was forever invaluable to him as a result of taking that step. Let's move on. Number three, I read second Kings five, three, it says, so I repeat that it says one day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master will go to see the prophet in Samaria. Who did she tell? She told her mistress. She didn't go straight to Naaman. All right. She told her mistress the direct line of command. She, even though the message was for Naaman, she told who she told her mistress. And number three is this. Don't care about who gets the credit. Don't care about who gets the credit. What do I mean by that? You see what I've noticed, you know, um, from my own experience as a leader and also from, from life experience as well, I've made that mistake. I've made the mistake and I've seen other people make that mistake. What I've noticed is that some people sabotage their chances of making progress or promotion or whatever it is because they only want to share all their good ideas with the quote unquote boss or the most influential person in the room, even though there are multiple layers of accountability separating them and that person. So they have a good idea. They, they have a head of department. They won't tell the head of department. They will go and look for maybe group head or somebody. Why? Because they want a seat at the table. So they bypass everyone and then just go straight there, right? The slave girls could have basically seen that information as her own ticket out of slavery. And as a result of that, she would have basically said, listen, I'm not going to tell my madame. <laughs> I'm going to go and tell Oga. And I don't know what could have happened to her. Because number one, the audacity. She remember she's a slave. The audacity. Nema would say, who are you? You know, how dare you come into my presence? Uh, go and behead her, which is very, very possible. Not an exaggeration at all. But she told it to someone. And, you know, even though the information came, in fact, in fact, this, this is what I'm really saying. The wife of Naaman could just have said, I heard it from somewhere. She didn't even have to mention the slave girl because the Bible doesn't even say how. It just says that Naaman then told the king. So obviously the wife 
told Neyman. But she could have completely left that girl's name out. That's what I'm saying. Don't be motivated by, oh, I want to make sure that I get the credit. And as a result of that, I want to be the one that will tell the boss myself. So that he will say, oh, good job. What's your name again? And then he will note your name and say, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And then the next time you have an idea, you bypass your line manager and you go straight. (laughs) That's dangerous. Okay? It's dangerous because what I've noticed is most leaders will tell you that people who are always bypassing established leadership lines to pitch or to complain to a senior leader, these kind of people are perceived as schemers. All right. They're perceived as schemers. They're seen as people that are only interested in themselves. And because the truth is no matter how much you spin it, If you are cutting out your direct lead, you will be seen as someone who is not a team player. So it's going to actually affect you negatively in the long run. You might think, oh, the CEO now knows my name because, you know, I went and pitched this idea to him. That's even if you get to him. So if you found a way to scheme and then get to the point where you're speaking to the CEO, he's marked you. Honestly, this is from my own experience, right? Um, In leadership, from reading leadership books, from talking to leaders, the, that person has marked you that ah, this one's not a team player. What happened? In fact, what could even happen is the CEO will now call the head of your department or group head and say, ah, this person came to me and they'll be talking behind your back and they'll be saying, ah, why is he? <laughs> so don't do it all. And the reason why you will not do that is because you will not care who gets the credit. You don't care who gets the credit as long as the the organization moves forward whether you get the credit or not doesn't matter to you and you know that god who sees in secret will reward you openly if men do not reward you don't even lose sleep over it because god has seen it and he by himself will bring you reward okay now obviously i needed to say this there are exceptions to that rule okay there are exceptions to that principle there are occasions or times where the person that is your direct lead um, is not really someone that cooperates. He sh- shoots down everybody's ideas. Uh, he doesn't listen. He never listens. Um, and if, for example, the project is in serious jeopardy, I know that if you don't say something, um, the company is going to lose, for example, millions of pounds. I don't know, whatever it is. Um so there might be, ex- I don't even know if in that situation it's even right to, to bypass them. I don't know. Uh, but personally, if you go by the rule that don't care who gets the credit. So if you have a brilliant idea, give it to your department head. They may reject it and say that's nonsense. But trust me, that idea will speak. It will find a way to speak and they will, they might not come back and apologize for rubbishing your idea in the first place. But you, you know, you've done your part. So let's, you know, just present it, give it as a gift to the team and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you openly. And as I said, people tend to mark people like that as schemers and people that are not team players. So you want to avoid that. Number four. So let's move on. Number four, I'm going to read from, from the Bible again and then come and, you know, state what number four is. So verse four Uh, I'm reading 46. It says, so Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. So he went to his boss. 
Okay, so he immediately took that information or the help that he needed and he went to his boss. I will send him. So the king said, I will send a letter of introduction for you to take it to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver. The guy was loaded, man. 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now, this number four, this fourth principle that will help you become indispensable in your organization, particularly to maybe your boss or the CEO or people generally, people that hire and fire, <laughs> is this. Now, I'm going to make the statement and then explain what I mean so that people don't misunderstand me. And it is this, to expose your vulnerability in whatever you know in your personal life so in personal matters don't come across as someone who is perfect and never needs help okay so expose your vulnerability in personal matters what do i mean by that so i need to explain this for you to understand what i am saying see people love being asked for advice did you know that people love being asked for advice now I'm not let me let me <laughs> let me be clear. This was not work related. This was a personal matter. It was a personal issue that Naaman was dealing with. So it wasn't like his boss, King of Aram, said, Okay, go and conquer this kingdom. And then he'll now come and say, Hey, so what do you think I should do? Hey, so I tried this. No, no, don't do that too, because people find it annoying. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. So Naaman was exceptional in his work. He was, if he was told to go and do something, he came back with exceptional results. So this is not work related. It was not related to his work, but in his personal life, he was going through something. All right. So, but in spite of that, he was still crushing it. Even with his personal issues, Naaman was still being exceptional in his job. So I'm not talking about where people will use personal challenges as a crutch to underperform. I'm not talking about that, not even remotely. He had already demonstrated excellent at his job, regardless of what he was going through in his personal life. But what, here's what I'm saying. And I'm going to give you an example because remember... I sat down and I and I meditated on the, my 15-year career and I saw an example more than once actually of this, right? It, he had demonstrated excellence, well taken. But what endeared him even further to the king was the fact that he had come to him for help. Now, here's a secret. Here's a secret. If a top performer, all right, in your organization... Your employer is always looking for opportunities and ways to invest in you over and beyond the call of duty, right? So that you can feel more connected to the company and you won't want to leave. That is actually a leadership principle. So your A-game players, right? If they are absolutely killing it for you, it is a leadership principle that you find a way to connect with them beyond work, Something that ties them in so that they would not readily leave you, right? It's a leadership principle. So when the king had that opportunity, I'm sure he was elated. He was like, okay, what can I do to help? So he got a, he got, um, 
a letter he wrote a letter and i'm i have a feeling that all those things that Naaman was going to go and give maybe the king even contributed to it and gave him some of it said listen just go i want you to sort out your personal life i'm for you i'm standing with you and all those things that people say right so you ask for help when you need it expose your vulnerability right if someone is going through something in their personal life you don't want to come to work and just put on a mask right? People think, oh, if I show them that I'm going through this, they'll think I can't do my job. But remember, you've already demonstrated that in spite of what you're going through, you're still killing it at work. That actually makes them respect you even more because they're like, ah, this person is going through this and they're still delivering. They're not complaining. They're not, you know, making it seem as if, oh, because of this, I can't do this. Trust me, when you now open up to them, they see you in a different light. They want to help you and the empathy kicks in, right? The empathy kicks in. So it will endear them to you. And remember, if if someone has an emotional connection with you, it makes it more difficult for them to, if they say they're downsizing, you will not be the first person on the list because you're doing well and then there's an emotional connection. So there's been a, a human to human connection. It's not just about the work. I'll give you an example from my own career, right? There was, you know, a time many years ago when I had to take time off work because Maxine was going to have an, um, an operation on her eye and, and, you know, was going to be general. She'll be put to sleep and I, I needed to take a few days off work, uh, for her recovery and all those things. So I went to speak to, to the head about taking time off. And if you, I've said this before, the teaching prof- um, profession is quite inflexible. You can't just go like that, right? Because uh, you can't work from home, <laughs> at least, right? Um, so you had to be on site and all this. So I, I was like, I was, I was feeling bad that I had to take that time off because I knew that it would not be easy to get somebody in to do my job and all that. So, I, but I was like, I'm, she's, I'm the only person Maxine has, so I need to go and take time. So I went to him and, um, the policy actually at, at the time in the organization was if you're taking, you know, time like that off to care for someone, then you could, but it will be without pay. But I remember something. I remember clearly that when I went to him and I showed him the, the letter, you know, from the hospital, he looks at it and I said, I need, could I please have a few days off, um, unpaid so that, you know, I could look after my daughter and everything. He was like, absolutely. Do you know, he got up, he personally walked with me to HR and then guess what? He asked them, he said, you know, um, she needs to take this time off. Please approve it. Even extended the days, approve it with pay. He said, approve it, give her all the time she needs with pay. It was as if he was so grateful for the opportunity to be of service to me because I had been delivering exceptional results. I had been putting myself, pouring myself into that organization and he knew it and he knew it. So it was like, oh, something I can actually do for her. He, he took it personally. He was like, yes, you know, absolutely. You can go and don't worry about anything. We'll make sure it's sorted. And I'm not talking about somebody this is what i'm trying to say this person i'm describing he was not like some mushy mushy person he was a tough person right he was tough as in he normally he would not have done that he was a tough person he was very principled 
I, I greatly admired him till today. Very principled person. So he wasn't like mushy, emotional. Oh, I just want to help. I know it was nothing like that. But I noticed by thinking about it that he wanted an opportunity, you know, to be able to help me on a personal level that had nothing to do with work. And what I also noticed was after that, there was a deeper connection between us, like human to human, not just like robot to robot as in, okay, work, work, work. Because the personal thing had entered because I had a personal issue that he was able to help me. So we connected on the emotional or human level when we now became human beings to each other, not just targets, (laughs) not just, oh, these are the work targets, go and achieve it. We became human beings to each other. All right. And that's a school that when I was going to leave, in fact, it took me almost two years to eventually leave because every time I said I wanted to leave, he would, he would just basically, you know, give me higher level responsibilities and say, no, you, I, I really need you to take this on. I re- he kept adding, I said, until I put my foot down, I said, I need to go. So can you see? And I believe that one of those reasons why eventually it became like that was there was a deeper connection on the personal level. So that is not just about work, right? So number five, let's move on. Number five, I'll read um, verses seven and eight. It says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God <laughs> that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So the king of Israel receives the letter from um, Naaman's boss. And like, this guy, his motive, his ulterior motive is really to come and go to war with us. How am I supposed to heal somebody of leprosy? And the guy started complaining and he went into depression. He tore his clothes and all those things, right? Let me keep reading. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, He sent his message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there's a true prophet here in Israel. Right. So number five is embrace problems that others are complaining about or running away from. If you want to be indispensable in your organization, embrace problems that others are complaining about or running away from. In fact, I believe that one is one of the quickest ways to rise to the top. And that is the second one. I think the first one I said was, um, you know, bringing God, bringing the God factor into the work of your hands. This particular one specifically is what allowed me to rise as quickly as I did in my career. And this is what I mean. And I didn't choose it all. In fact, I can't take credit for it because for some reason I would show up in a new school and then they would give me like the, the, <laughs> the worst set of classes or something that nobody wanted as a newbie, as a newbie. So all the ones that had been there for a long time, they'll take all the nice, you know, cushy A-level classes and all the nice kids top set and then they'll come and load you up with bottom set. The kids I don't even want to learn as early as 12 are telling you, miss, I don't want to be here. <laughs> what do you do with that? So it wasn't even by choice, but this is what I realized that it is probably the one principle that has worked, that, that worked out the best for me in my career, right? Throughout my career, it was taking something that was difficult. I gave the example of um, the second to last school that I worked in, one of the most difficult periods in my professional career. 
but I also achieve the greatest result, impact in the shortest amount of time. So if you are the kind of person that is resilient, if you see opportunity in trouble, you will go far. You will become indispensable because what other people are running away from, you embrace it. You take it with the help of God. You produce results. They will keep saying, ah, this is a problem solver, not just any kind of problem solver, but the kind of problems that people don't want to touch. Okay, that will definitely set you apart. And there's so many examples. I'll give you just one example. Um, and that is, you know, um, so when I went into middle leadership for the first time, I became a head of year. And this was probably the third year of my teaching career. So I was fairly new. Okay, in teaching, and then I was now a middle middle leader. I was a head of year, and head of year means you are responsible for the pastoral well-being of approximately two hundred students, and then you had your own team that you worked with of teachers, etc. So I became a head of year, and guess what? As soon as I was appointed for that role, Ofsted showed up. <laughs> so Ofsted is the governing body. Is it governing body that I'll call it? regulatory that's what the regulative body of you know uh, schools in england so they will come and they'll visit your school and then they'll give you a rating or whatever it is areas of improvement or whatever so they came this is me i was newly in fact it was a year year eight group so i was head of year eight uh i was newly appointed i was literally like a week in the job after showed up and in almost every class every that offset lessons department rather so they went to the science department observe lessons year eight students were highlighted as being the most disruptive they went to maths year eight they went to english year eight they were, as in all around the school even in the playground <laughs> even in the playground they were particularly singled out as the most badly behaved and disruptive students in the whole school hey jesus i said what have i done <laughs> Who sent me? <laughs> Who sent me? But to be honest, even though that was like the initial reaction, something inside me was just stubborn enough to say, no, this is my opportunity. No, these kids, uh-uh, they are, they are throwing their education and the compassion rose up within me. And straight away, as soon as the Ofsted report landed, you know, I began to put a plan in place straight away. In fact, I, as I'm talking now, I'm remembering the audacity. I was young. I was very, I was literally, I was a young teacher that, that had been given that role. But I came, I went to God, I said, God, I need ideas. And these children, I need to sort them out. I went to God and I began to, you know, get ideas and I wrote, you know, a plan. By the next day, I had gone and presented it to the head and said, this is what we need to do. And he was, he had this huge grin on his face, like, who is this girl? He was so proud of me. I could tell it was written all over his face. And he backed me 100%. And I began to put those things in place. If I called the, I called the meeting of all the parents, I, I said, get in here. <laughs> I called, I said, all the parents. I said, I wrote them a letter. I said, I want you, you know, I'm, I want to have a meeting with you. And I did all that. He was there at every meeting, right? And honestly, true to God, before the end of that year, if I don't even think it stretched the whole year, they were one of the best behaved students in school. And I, and I ended in, and I took that year group through for another two or three years before, you know, I think they passed on to sixth form or something. And 
by the time they were leaving, as in a lot, they were, they had been so successful that in the history and a lot of these things, people might think I'm lying, but God is my witness. Okay. In the history of the school, the results they achieved was the best, was the best in the history of school that had been there for, I don't know how long, a long time from the worst behaved. And my entire professional career is littered with stories like that. That was just one that I just decided to share. Littered, right? In the place of pressure, diamond always comes out. If you embrace problems that others are complaining about, there is no better way to distinguish distinguish yourself in an organization. Okay, I have three more very quickly. Number six, number six. Now this one... I found particularly interesting, right? Um, I'll read from verse 9. It says, 9 to 12, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. But Elijah sent a messenger out to him with his message, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would suddenly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and Fafa, better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. Now, I like to always look at things from two different perspectives. Whenever the story of Naaman is taught, people just look at him as some arrogant guy. I mean, a prophet of God is telling you to go and dip in the river and you're like, eh, me, I'm not dipping in any river, right? We see from only the perspective of Elisha. But I always like to turn around and see from the other person's perspective. So if you actually look from Naaman's perspective, he probably was justified in what he was saying. Why do I say that? probably the prophet in his own country, if he went to them for anything, that is how they would have responded to him. So in his own homeland, in his own culture, where he was probably second in command to the king, every time he walked into a place, people treated him that way. And he had come to expect to be treated that way in his own culture. But the problem now is, He was no longer in Aram. He was now in Israel, a completely different culture. Elisha was not one of the prophets of the gods in his own country. Elisha was a prophet of God. And there was no way. And one of the particular things about the Israelites was you don't bow. You don't make graven images. So you don't bow before a man. All right. A prophet of God would not have bowed before him and said, oh, oh, king, oh, king. Did you see the way in the Bible prophets talk to kings? Like, don't say the Lord. They'll even be pointing their finger in their face. So it's a completely different culture. But he didn't understand that. He did not understand that. And as a result of that, he got offended. So number six is respect other people's rules. Respect other people's rules. If you go to another part of the organization, another department, and they do things differently, understand the culture. Understand the culture. If you want to be someone that is indispensable to your organization, don't go and cause disruption. Don't go and bring your own ideas into another culture and say, it must be done this way. I mean, what right have you to do that? So what Naaman really should have done 
what he should have been willing to do was to observe and say, oh, how did they do things here? And after observing, then try and adapt himself to that culture as best as he could. So if he had asked around that, okay, this God of Israel, what's he like? As in how do his you know, prophets relate with people? He would have known that a prophet of God would not bow before any man, not even before a king. Because they saw themselves as representatives of God and the kings even bowed before them. All right. Samuel anointed the first ever king, Saul. And Saul was subject to to, uh, Samuel. That was the correct order. But where he was coming from, the prophets of the gods served the king and the king was lord and master over them. All right. I hope that makes sense. So he, he should have made his research to say, how is it in this place? then he would not have been offended when Elisha behaved that way because he'll understand that, oh, okay, so this is how things are done here, all right? Um, that kind of thing, not being self-aware, and really the key skill here is self-awareness, where people are not aware of the environment and they just go and do things anyhow. The only way they see fit, it causes problems. People will avoid you because you will just be you know, causing problems everywhere you go and people will avoid you. All right. Number seven, number seven, I'll read very quickly. Verse 13 and 14 says, but his officers tried to reason with Naaman and said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says, simply go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan river and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. Okay. Now, what am I going to point out here? Number seven is this speak up, speak up when you have a valid, a helpful or a valuable opinion, even if the opinion is you're sharing it with people that are your um, that leaders, people that are ahead of you, or whatever it is. When Naaman was being foolish because he was not self-aware, he hadn't done his research, he was going to walk away from his healing. And they saw that he was clearly wrong. His servants spoke up. They said, ah, no, this is not the right thing to do. Why don't you think about it this way? And they presented another perspective. They spoke up. If they had not spoken up, they would have all gone back home with a leprous Naaman. The rest of his life, he would have remained that way. Right? So when you know someone is clearly on the wrong path, like a leader, someone that's ahead of you, don't be afraid to speak up. All right. Now, let me, you know, let me, um, add this. I'm not talking about the people who are always wanting to share an opinion. So they always have an opinion that everybody must hear before you say two sentences. They're like, well, um, excuse me. And they're wanting to No, that's not what I'm talking about because that's annoying. That's annoying. Number one. And it's also a symptom of someone who is not, who, who is not, um, teachable because if you're always talking you don't hear you should listen twice as much as you speak because when you're speaking you're not learning so that's not what i'm referring to that's not what i'm referring to i'm talking about on occasion where you know inside you that this thing i have an idea or i have something to say i have an opinion right don't worry about whether they accept it or not you just do your part and present it they can reject it it's fine 
Okay. What's the worst that can happen? They'll reject your advice. Fine. Move on. Say, I did my part. The same way if the servants of Naaman had told him and he had said, no, rubbish, let's go back. Well, they told him. And what is the best that could happen? It could end up being what brings phenomenal growth into that company. The same way what they told Naaman ended up being what saved his life. So speak up. All right. And the final one, I'm going to read verse 15 to wrap this up. It says that Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God, which is Elisha. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. And Naaman even went on to swear to Elisha that I will never bow before any God except the, the Lord, the God of Israel. And he even said, please pray to the Lord to please have mercy on me so that if my king is going to worship his own God and he wants to lean on my hand, that I'm just going, you know, because he's going and I can't say no, that God should not, you know, he should have mercy on me. But by choice, I will never bow before any other God, but the Lord, the God of Israel. So what is my number eight? If you want to endear yourself, you want, if you want to be invaluable, indispensable to your organization, be the kind of person that brings new business in. Now, what do I mean by that? How did Elisha make himself indispensable to God? Remember I said, I will look at different characters and how they were indispensable to their boss. Um, God was Elisha's boss. How did Elisha make himself indispensable to God in that situation? He won Naaman from the gods that were not gods over to God. So he brought in new business for God, quote and unquote. All right. If you want to put it in context, the most valuable employees are those that contribute to their organization's bottom line. So now you might say, I'm not in sales department, but how can you, by doing your best in whatever it is you do, how can that result in expanding the business and bringing money or whatever it is into the business? Because the truth of the matter is cash is king. If new business isn't coming in, you have no business, period. No matter how good your intention is. And I'm, you know, you might say, oh, but you are a teacher. I'm telling you, why do we think, why do you think schools hold open evenings? They want, because if you are undersubscribed, the government pays schools based on the number of students they have, right? So if they don't meet the quota of what the building can take, that means less staff, less facilities and all that. So you, you know, you have to do open evenings. You have to, every teacher needs to get involved in opening. If you can't say, I can't come. If, it's, if they put it on a Saturday, you have to be there because it contributes to the bottom line of that organization. That's what I'm saying. How can you position yourself that you are contributing to the bottom line of your organization? Okay. How are you making the business grow or expand in terms of business, in terms of money? Okay. That is number eight. <laughs> and that's me done. Those are eight principles that you can apply that by the grace of God will make you indispensable. I don't even think you need to apply all of them. I did not apply all of them. Right. Um, I even learned some as I was researching and preparing for this episode, but 
read through the eight and think from where I am now, where I'm standing, which of these can I definitely begin to apply this year, 2020, that will make me indispensable to my organization. And it could result in the fact that they promote you, they increase your salary, right? Or if you want to leave, they send you off with such goodwill or recommend you to another place. That would, so it, it will open so many doors for you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back next week. Bye.